Sidney Moncrief, the Basketball Hall of Famer, joined us on Sport and the Growing Good to talk about leadership. Sidney played for the Milwaukee Bucks for most of the 1980s and was a legendary Bucks player going on to the Hall of Fame and reaching the highest levels of the game, playing against and competing against some of the all-time greats in NBA history. After his playing career, Sidney went on to coach at multiple stops as a head coach and then as an assistant coach. And also for the more recent years has been touring around the country, giving talks at schools and companies and all kinds of community spaces about leadership. And his leadership discussions in these recent days are not just about leading in the context of a basketball team, but more broadly, how do leaders guide groups and cultivate understanding and progress wherever they are. So in today's conversation, we spoke about some of these items and we went back into some of his days when he played in the NBA to talk about how the era of the 1980s, it was a time when leadership was viewed very differently and playing professional sports did not necessarily lead everyone to get socially involved in social issues and being a leader in social issues that occurred outside of sport. And so one of the most interesting takeaways I had from our conversation was that as leaders, we need to be attuned to the broader context in which we are living, we are operating, and that we should realize that just because things were a certain way, maybe when we competed, that they've changed and that now we have a world that is much more connected in so many ways and that coaches need to understand what's coming in the doors on their teams and how to facilitate productive, healthy relationships and conversations on their teams. Thank you so much, Coach Sidney Moncrief, for joining us on Sport and the Growing Good. Coach, in the beginning of your book, of one of your books, of one of your many books, you start out with a sentence that says, my destiny was to bridge the gap between people across different ethnic and socioeconomic lines. And I thought that was a really interesting first line in that you've done so many things. You've competed at the highest of levels. You've coached at the highest of levels. But you spelled out... a what you said, a destiny. And so in these next couple of conversations we have, I'm really excited to hear about that, about your your books that you've, you've written. Our students who are studying leadership and coaching will gain so much from you. But almost before I ask you more specifically about your books, I'm really interested to hear about relationships and culture, team culture, two, those are two of the biggest constructs we talk about with, with our students as they work with teams of all levels, from youth teams all the way up to professional teams, is the importance of healthy relationships and positive team culture. And when I spoke with you last, I don't know if you recall, but you really shared some powerful stories about your high school coach and then also about Coach Sutton when you were at Arkansas. But I think some of us in our program maybe know less about the dynamics in like a professional organization, what relationships look like in those settings. So I want to actually start you off, start off with a question about what relationships look like in a professional team setting. For example, when you're with the Bucks and how meaningful relationships take shape in a professional sports setting. Great question because the transition from when I played, how relationships look, high school, college, and NBA to today, how relationships look. They mirror corporate somewhat. I grew up in the 70s, played in the 80s, and there, there, there were no relationships. You were told what to do. You respected that leader some of the time. But based on their position, 
you pretty much did what you were asked to do and didn't think a lot of it because that's how you were raised. You were raised that way from elementary school to high school, through the church, every organization that you, you were a part of, we tell you what to do and you do it. A, a very strange thing happened though. From that time up until probably the late 1990s, on to early 2000s, things started to change because players started demanding more. Social media was not in, in play very much then, but there was a new uh, sense of empowerment with players and they wanted more respect and they wanted uh, to be looked upon in, in a different light. Don't tell me what to do build a relationship where I can trust you and then show me what to do. And then maybe I'll do it. That hit really hard and heavy for me. I was an assistant coach for Milwaukee, 2012, 2013. That's when it went full circle. At that point, if you were an assistant coach, your sole responsibility was to build a relationship with whoever they picked out for you. Each player had about four players. Now, we had that when I coached in 2000 also, but we only had four players to tell them what to do, go over game film, and coach them up. It was not a requirement to take them out to dinner, to call them, to text them, to have a relationship where they can get to know you. About 2012, when I was working with the Bucks, that's when that started to happen, to where it was understood that without relationships, it was very difficult to move these players in the right direction. They were no longer doing what you asked them to do simply because you were, quote, the leader. You had to gain a certain amount of respect from them before they would react. Same in corporate. We're seeing that now in corporations. And we saw it before the pandemic. People think it started with the pandemic, but it actually started before the pandemic where employees felt a little more empowered to make decisions, to want to be treated a certain way to want that leader to build relationships with them. A lot has happened in the last 30 years in that area. Is some of that in the athletics context related to even the pipelines before it gets to the pros? So for example, you 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 played out your your youth basketball experience for me before and how you know you your formative experiences were with the high school and you had these really important coaches as guides. Today, maybe some of the most important basketball, for example, for young people is in the school, but even more so like on the AAU circuit and their, the nature of their relationship is very different. They're getting pampered, recruited from a young, young age. Maybe that's too strong a word, but, um, does that, that, does that, is that kind of what happened when you identified 2012, that those, that kind of cycle had risen up to professional? Yeah, I think it did. I coached in college for one year. I was a head coach for one year in, in 2000 to 2001. Then I went to the NBA. And that's when that started to take place. If you ask a young man or a young lady, where do you play? Who do you play for? It's not uncommon for them to say they're AAU team. Totally unheard of 20, 30 years ago. It was automatic. Who did you play? Who did you play for? Oh, Hall, Hall High School or, or Central High School. Now they'll say, I played for the Raiders or I played for the Trojans or I played for this group and that group because of what you just said. Those coaches have built that relationship. They pump those players up. They take care of them more than high schools can do in most cases or, or will do. And they have established a certain amount in their mind of trust in that coach or that program. Sometimes not even the coach. Sometimes it's that the program is so prestigious that they want to be a part of it. So some of the topics we're really addressing among our group, but we have this really great group of young coaches in our program and that we have these conversations about leadership, about becoming a leader. And, and sometimes these are not easy situations. Like sometimes it's leadership on the court or on the field, but, but even more and more and more frequently it's leadership when kind of tough things are happening outside of the sport and, and what kind of role do you take on in those situations? So 
Um, but one of the things we've talked about a lot with our group is that the immediate relations we have with teammates shapes the way we process difficult things. In other words, if, if we have trusting relationships on our teams, we're more set up to have a foundation that we can have difficult conversations together. Again, referring back to your own days, did you was there a friend or two that stands out from your career, a particular teammate who you forged a trusting bond with, and what did that look like? Now, Peter, I, I want to hit on what you said first uh, because it does bring back one thing that has not changed in coaching. I want the coaches to understand this: <clears throat> is once players know you care, once they know that you have your their best interests at heart. Once they know that you're transparent, you're not lying to them, you're not just telling them what they want to hear, right away, the trust goes up and the respect goes up. That that was 30 years ago, although we did everything we were told just about, most players did. You, you always had rebels on every team. Even when I played, I had players that did not do what the coaches wanted them to do, and they didn't play for that coach. <laughs> they were gone. They kicked off the team. So that worked 30 years ago. People don't care what you know until they know you care. It's as relevant today. People don't know, don't care what you know until they know that you care. And I think all coaches should understand that you must develop the attitude of caring, transparency, honesty, all those integrity, all those traits are important when you coach because when you do that, that environment that we're about to talk about, you actually trust most of your teammates. I didn't have one or two guys that I trusted more than others because the environment was such, the rigor, the practice, everything we did was such that you knew people were on top of their game. We were not perfect by any stretch, never have been as players, but we, we, we knew that each player on the team would try to do the right thing to help the team win. And that's, that's a great environment to where you don't feel like one or two guys you're now off the court. You always cling to, to people that you feel most comfortable with, but on the court, I, I just went out and just played my best basketball. So this is again, though, is in that era, the pre 2012 era that you identified um, we're, we're in an era now where coach kind of tells you what to do and you go do it. Um, how did, how did the coach in that era, maybe any particular coach of yours show care at the same time as having that kind of tell you what to do, um, philosophy? Yeah, I think behind the scenes is where you saw that a lot where players might be in a situation that very difficult, that a player, a coach could turn their back on that player and not be there to support them. Uh, they, you, you knew that they still supported that player, although you might not be, you might not be right for this team right now because of your, your behavior. But I'm not going to turn my back on you. And you, you saw that a lot. You, and back then, remember, for us, we were brainwashed. <laughs> it's like. If a coach is not on your butt, then they don't really care for you. They don't care about you. You heard that narrative so much that you felt that if a coach is just going to leave you alone, which is true in most cases, they're going to, they're not going to rate, rate uh, I'm sorry, they're not going to waste energy on a player that they don't really feel is worthy of it. But if they were on you trying to get you to do the right thing on the basketball court, and remember, once again, we didn't have the knowledge base. If you ask any kid nowadays about an offensive set, because they play NBA 2 live or college, whatever that is, they know every set, every play, every call, and they grow up with this mentality that we know it all. We, we didn't know it all. We thought we did, but we, we knew we didn't. <laughs> One of those kind of deals. But I know when my sons would play uh, – Two, I mean, the football game, they would have these discussions. I'm like, now you are really think you can coach now. Huh? <laughs> so now it's different. A coach is making decisions on sets and strategies, and players are seeing it played out on a video game. 
a certain way that could cause them to doubt the credibility of that coach. And that must be a difficult position to be in. I often hear about how the, the NBA in your case, or you could substitute NFL or, you know, major league baseball or any kind of professional sport, you know, when you get to that level, it's a business and, you know, people are important, but ultimately, you know, you get traded or you get cut or you, these, these things happen. In that environment, did you ever have a coach in the professional environment who identified values for your team, like principles and values that would guide the work you did? Or was it all just straight bottom of the line win? I think the principles and guidance is always in their actions. Not in what you say is what you do. We always like to say we do work. It's not what you say you're going to do, but what you do. But Don Nelson, Dale Harris, all the assistant coaches from Rick Majerus and to Mike Schuler, they walked the talk. Those principles you were talking about didn't have to be stated. We saw them every day. They played out before us every practice, every game, every film session. And we knew what the standards were because of that. They didn't have to say, here's our standards. Didn't have to put a big plaque on the wall with the standards and steps to success. We, it was very clear just the way they, they conducted themselves on, on and off the court. I can recall the, you know, you brought up Rick Majerus, a Wisconsin native, of course. And uh, I can recall being out at the, I used to work at the university of Utah and observing some of his practices and, you know, he was really tough. He was a tough yeah, he was. coach but also really funny, you know, say these funny things. um, But just by sitting there and watching a a Utah Utes practice when Rick Majerus was the coach, you just what you just said, you could see it jump off the page that he valued the fundamentals that he valued defensive basketball. So that really rings true what you just said. Yeah. And and with that leadership, I like to give the C's it's more than this, but the C's I use is competence, (laughs) character, consistency communication and the consistency I think is where a lot of leaders drop off a little bit because they let situations which you to some extent situations will guide certain things you do but your core values are your core values your principles are your principles your standards are your standards if you start compromising all the time you no longer have them and I think that consistency it's like Rick Majerus it was there it was, didn't matter. But Rick, is, as quickly as he would rim a player out and make them feel bad, he was just, just as quickly puts his arm around their shoulder and say, it's okay, you're going to have a better day next tomorrow. Well, if that player was ever in trouble, needed assistance, or needed someone to talk to, they were, they were there. To, to, he was there to talk to them. And those are the qualities that I think are very important for leaders. It's been clear to see like in these last few years especially I remember when the NBA was in the bubble um, it was when our world was going through so many so many really really difficult things not only the pandemic but there was the a lot of racial injustice happening that summer and that year and it was very clear that the NBA was taking a stand and a lot of the players were taking stands Um, and that's just one example again there have been a lot of other examples as you reflect back to mostly when you were a player, even before you're coaching, do you recall there being situations where there were things happening in the social world around you, non-basketball things that your team talked about together? And what, what did that look like? It was difficult when I played because it was, it was the era of excess. It was an era of do your own thing. It was an era of you know, be very, very successful it wasn't the era of being woke or being conscious or being having empathy or any of that. We didn't really grow up in that era. For as much as we criticize today players, one thing we should recognize is they have that. They grew up, they, they're growing up that way. We were, we did not. All we what we focused on was on the basketball court. I think Bill Russell, that group in the 60s, they had that going on, what you're talking about. By the time you got to the mid late 70s, 80s, it was a totally different mindset. 
not only with players, but also with people in, in, in our country. So the social consciousness, we didn't have it beyond knowing that we were still being discriminated against even as NBA players. Mm -hmm. Things were not fair as NBA players, but we're making this money. You have notoriety. What, what do you have to be upset about? Just shut up and dribble. And, you know, that's what we did pretty much. We had conversations behind the scenes. You knew that if you had conversations outside in public, unlike the 60s, you probably would be playing somewhere else with blackball, more than likely. Hmm. The 60s, you could have that conversation because it was, there were people backing you to have that discussion. You can have that discussion now. People are backing you to have that discussion. But the 80s, people were not back. They didn't really want to hear that. And it would have been detrimental to your career to, to go out there and say anything that was out of line. Well, it was even interesting to read like the the John Wooden biography or if you read some of Kareem's stuff um, about those days back at UCLA when he when he played there. And then also when Bill Walton was there and they were very, very socially active. That would be like the 60s. Um, and part of it probably was they were in California in a very progressive area. Um, but so what you're saying is, do you think that some of the context allowed them to do that more in that setting than it maybe did when Kareem was in Milwaukee or when he was in? I, I think it was a time, remember the 60s was a time of rebellion. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a time of protest. It was a time of a lot of different things. And you had racial protests, protest, protests about the war. You had the poverty protests. That was the 60s. That was, it was all about that. It was easier to have those discussions in the 60s, probably early 70s. But then late 70s, 80s, you didn't hear those discussions very much. It was all about progress and making sure you get what, what you have coming to you. Yeah, there was the famous Michael Jordan quote about, you know, I think something about everyone buys sneakers or Republicans buy sneakers and so do Democrats. And so he, people were criticizing him for not taking a stand on one side of an issue or another. And that was probably the clearest indicator of what you just said. Yes, it was. It was. It's, it's all about the game. It's all about playing basketball. It's all about selling products. Your uh, branding was not, Michael was one of the only magic bird. He had some players that, I don't know if they understood branding or branding understood them. <laughs> Either way, they were able to take advantage of creating a brand. I think that's obviously started with Michael Jordan. Started really with Larry Bird and Magic when they played in the NCAA finals and went to the NBA. That's when they started branding, not teams. It, it was There was no longer the Lakers versus the Celtics. It was Magic versus Bird. And they started doing those individual branding, brilliant strategy. But before that, it was pretty much uh, team oriented. So uh, part of this, what what I'm I'm trying to make sense of is that, uh, um, and, and part of what our students are thinking through is how does the world of sports fit into kind of our broader social world, and how do we develop as leaders in this? complex social world and it's just so interesting to think about each of these sports teams that you played on and and even to look at the rosters of some of those teams and to see guys coming from all over the place all over the country you know different races all all different kind of backgrounds and you're you're kind of thrown in the mix together like as the world is revolving around you and so that that was part of what I was really interested to learn from you is, is how you all navigate that together. But but my in, in initial impression here is that during that era, you weren't necessarily forced to do that. No, no, you were not. <clears throat> However, coaches played a major role in shaping and also giving players the inf informational base to be what we call game changers within our society. Hmm. And you miss the point when you don't do that. And I, I can look back at when I played college, all, most of the players that I played with, they're making a substantial impact on our world. They're not talking about it. They're doing it. Now, why are they doing it in an era where it was not talked about a lot? 
because fundamentals are fundamentals. Fundamentals of living, treating people right, building relationships, they don't change a lot. We grew up in that. We didn't have to broadcast it. But now when we interact with others, we understand it. The only thing we were lacking, I think, is the principles of building relationships. Because when you did that doing when I played, you were considered kind of, you would consider an outcast or you were a sellout or why are you hanging with this group? You, you had all these things going on when all you're trying to do is to broaden your scope of influence with others. That was not done very well during the time that I played. Coaches are doing that better now than they did years ago. We certainly read the Phil Jackson book, for example, the one, uh, the first one he wrote um, uh, when he was coaching the Jordan, the initial Jordan teams and talking about how he would, you know, he, he would have the guys read certain books and have them kind of expand their horizons. In, in your book, you talked about mindfulness. He had them doing mindfulness things in that it portrayed him as being kind of ahead of the curve in that regard. And and that, but it did say that he initially was, get, you know, guys were kind of laughing at him for doing it. Like it wasn't the norm in the locker room to have a coach ask you to close your eyes and breathe deeply. No, so, that was not normal. <laughs> <laughs> did you have, did you ever have coaches that tried kind of innovative things along the lines of relationship development in your experience? No, the closest we came, I remember when the concept of seeing positive results over and over in your mind creates positive results. And they would, I want to say in 85, maybe 86, I don't remember the year, but they would put all these positive clips together for players. If, if you're struggling with your free throw shooting, they would have clips of you making all your foul shots, and making all your layups, all, all these positive feedback visually you see. And they, they would have you meditate on that, watch it, and try to recreate it when you went out on the basketball court. Phil Jackson was certainly ahead of his ahead of the, the, the game in that area, and he was laughed at. Matter of fact, certain players said, can you imagine going to a practice session and not having a basketball because he did not use a basketball, allegedly, at the beginning of some of his practices. They visualize and move without even having a ball on the court. Players laughed about it, but it, it was successful. Well, now when you look around the league or look around other coaching circles, it's kind of the norm. You know, you see so many coaches trying these kinds of things where Steve Kerr or so many of the other leaders in now across the field doing kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think with coaching, you, you should never be afraid of stepping outside the box. And as a leader, as long as you do your homework and you know the possible desired outcome, you should never be, you should never fear doing something different. And even with my workshops and I, I develop people and occasionally I come up with this, uh, Peter, I come up with this great idea in my mind. And the first thing my partner, my wife would say, that's not going to work. <laughs> and I would say, well, if it doesn't work, we I want to do it again. But I'm going to give it a chance to work because what if it does? I think coaching and leading is the same way. I think you're a very poor leader when you, you're stuck on, we call it stupid, you're stuck on just doing one thing one way. With that. Now, if it's successful, that's, but if you're struggling, you, you should consider trying new ways of doing things to get you out of that rut that you could possibly be in as a coach. Coach, I wanted to ask you about um, when you go around and speak, you go around all around now and speak with a lot of, whether it's corporations or teams or other people, and you talk about leadership. Um, let's take a case example of like, a, a, again, let's say a, a basketball team, just because we've been talking a lot about that. Um, are there, do you talk about there being different responsibilities for the main players in a room? In other words, if, I, if, I, if you're the coach, you're the leader of an organization, do you need to have that star player on board 
in terms of getting your mission across or do you view everyone kind of equally in the room? <laughs> They're definitely not equal. And you should never, only from an integrity standpoint, you treat everyone equal. Integrity is integrity. You don't compromise that. However, when you're, Don Nelson was the first coach. And to some extent, Coach Summit, Don Nelson understood that for me to get this point across to all the players, I have to get it across to the star players. For me to have us run a set a certain way, or play a set a certain way, I need to get the feedback of the players playing the most minutes that has to defend that set or execute that set. And he would come to us and ask for our, our opinion. And that stuck in my mind uh, because as leaders, we, we should seek the opinions of the people out there doing the work. Doesn't matter if it's athletics or corporate or whatever. And so, yeah, I did have that happened to me with Don Nelson and then Dale Harris took over. He did the same thing. He followed that trend. You don't think they don't have, you don't think they have LeBron James in their corner or mm-hmm. Kevin Durant and all these great players. Yes, they must be part of your internal team, part of your internal team. And that, I think that's very, very important because once you build that trust with them, once you build that relationship with them, they have the power to bring other people in the fold. And some people just, that you probably cannot bring in the fold, they, they could. And I think that's critical. And so along those lines, it's one thing to get. So again, let's see, post-2012, or we're in this new era where you have to give people the why to get your, why are we doing this and explain that to them. It, putting yourself in a, um, in a locker room right now as the coach of a team, um, how, how would you work through beyond the X's and O's, the like difficult things are happening in the world around us. Again, it's the, the discussion of leadership beyond the court. How would you approach that with your members of your team, with your star players? Your number one responsibility is performing on the court. If you want to be a social justice person, then you probably don't need to be playing basketball necessarily. And I think I would have that honest discussion with people because I do think there's a line to be drawn. I really do. Sometimes we forget, uh, like, do you protest in a football game? Do you take a knee when the owner that owns the team that's responsible for the fans, I told you not to? Are you going to be that, that defiant? I think we're setting not only the team up, but our society is based on order. Is based on having rules in place and it's based on people adhering to those rules. I just think as a coach, we have to keep that going because once we start compromising that on the football field or in the basketball court, then it's going to at some point hurt our society at large, which, which is doing now. <laughs> we're, seeing, we're seeing some of that now. Uh, so I, I would address it just head on, okay. We'll support you outside the court or football field and things that you're doing. However, I don't need you to focus on your classwork, getting your classwork done, and 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 getting better as a basketball player. Um, and it also, it, it, yeah, it also seems like it's so, so dependent upon the level you're at. So again, if you're if you're at a university setting where you're working with young people who are still kind of in full development mode there may be different opportunities to think through what's going on um, in the world together than there would be, you know, obviously with a bunch of 30 year old men. Well, but they're not 30 year old men, they're boys. I hate to say it that way. They're not. Remember NBA player, you're not really mentally developed where you can, you're going to make those good. I'm not saying every player, but in general, you've been pamper. Things have been given to you. You hadn't really had to make a lot of tough decisions. Right. So I don't really think that's totally accurate that we should assume because they're 28 that they're mature and they're going to make the decisions. Uh, in addition to the, the position you take could harm a relationship with that another player, because most players are not mentally strong enough to say, Oh, Peter, you're a Republican. I'm a Democrat. They're not, they, they can't draw the line. They're not 40, 50, or 60 where they can say, okay, you're, you have your opinion. I have my opinion. 
we're good. That is going to somehow get mixed up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very careful to understand as coaches, even the NBA, why are we here? We're here to entertain the fans and to make a difference in our world. But first of all, we're here to what? Entertain the fans and then use that platform to make a difference in the world. Why do anything to compromise with that? It's just not good business. It doesn't make sense. I remember you telling me that Coach Sutton was a real, a really great educator at heart, a really good teacher at heart. But also, um, you know, he he ran a tight ship in a lot of ways. Um, would he would he be able to coach the same way today? He, I watched him, I watched him coach at Arkansas. I watched him coach uh, certainly when I left Arkansas. And then when I was coaching with the Golden State Warriors in 2009, I watched him coach in San Francisco, University of San Francisco. I went, over, went to a couple of practices. And he, he had certainly had made some adjustments, but his standards hadn't changed. They had not changed. He might have been less hard on players, verbally what you say and what you don't say, because players, we had thin skin, but we just had to, we had to just, going about our business. But today, if you say the wrong thing the wrong way, you damage a kid for a long time. He understood that. He backed off of that. But how you execute, how you set picks, how you run a set, how hard you play, that was still the same. Uh, he, he did make the adjustment to the new. He didn't like it. He didn't like anything about the new college game. Mm -hmm. He did make the adjustment. It's been interesting to see some of the the um, not too players from the not too distant past transition to coaching roles, and whether that would be, you know, like a Jason Kidd or Steve Nash, or um, one that I was thinking about was Mark Jackson, and how when when Mark Jackson had this long and really distinguished career in the NBA, one of the all time leader leaders in assists, and then had a you, you mentioned the Warriors. He was coach of the Warriors at right at the dawn of their of their um, you know their run right before Kerr. Um, and I remember reading an article about how he brought his whole identity to the job. Like he and, and part of it was his his life of faith and his his faith tradition that he really brought with him to the job. How do we know what to bring and what we can't bring to the room as a leader? And I'm not and I'm not trying to say that he should not have brought his life of faith to his coaching, but how do you do that? How do you do that in a, in a way that works in a diverse environment? We use the acronym GRIT. In fact, you see GRIT right here, G-R-I-T. We use, use it a lot in our workshops. It's a foundation for everything that we do. And G is for growth. T is for, I mean, R is for resilience. I is for intentionality and T is for tenacity. We feel that's a good foundation for leaders and for individuals. I really like the I, because being intentional to me is everything. Being intentional means you're setting someone up for, for success, or you're setting someone up to grow in a certain area. And you're doing it sometimes without them knowing it, which is even more beautiful. I think as a coach, that word intentional comes into play. I felt as a coach, my primary responsibility, especially in college and NBA, the best I could, is to make that young man better as a, as a person. Because they're going to be a person a lot longer than they're going to be an athlete, even if they play in the NBA for 10, 12, 11 years like I did. Guys, you still have 60 more years if you're lucky to live, to live your life. And so being intentional about feeding Bill Jackson, <laughs> feeding players information that could help them become a better person and survive in our world is very critical. I think when you get into the religion, it becomes very uh, questionable because there are so many faiths and so many different discipline as, as it relates to religion out there. You could alienate some people and they could use it against you like they did with a great, great man Mark and Mark Jackson. Uh, but it's a balance you have to have. I try to keep everything very neutral where it's just a solid principle. 
it's not it's not based on any religion it's not based it's it's just so the thing you should do it's a proven thing to do because it makes sense and it will make you a better person it will make you more successful as a basketball player and as a person i like that approach uh, when you're coaching people well even the the idea of authenticity that you know players players are smart and and even kids are smart high school kids are smart and they can they can sniff it out if you're being a phony. And so I, I would imagine that even if, even when people bring things to the table that like I may disagree with, or I may have a different view on things. If you know that someone is being authentic and they're open-minded about it, then maybe there's a, there's a space where you can, you can really uh, engage in, in more difficult conversations if you're authentic. And if you build a relationship, and I think you have to do that like this, like we're doing. I don't think you do that in a group setting because every individual is different, different backgrounds, upbringing. So, yeah, I'm talking to Peter. We got a little, little relationship going. He feels comfortable. I feel comfortable. Now, maybe I bring up religion. It's a one-on-one situation, so I'm not, I'm not alienating. And then you can quickly, I can read your body language. Either I see you shut down and you don't want to talk about it, or yeah, you're open for that conversation. <clears throat> and and the, with coaches, the body language is everything. A lot of times we just we're, we're talking to people and we're not reading the cues that they're giving us. I'm not saying all coaches, some coaches you're just talking. No, you talk and you look and you you not only listen, but you're looking. You're looking for when they're feeling uncomfortable or when they when they might make a gesture that tells you uh, they're not feeling this conversation. And to me, that's very important to know and, and to execute very well as a coach or a leader. I think this idea of um, authenticity, again, and listening, like you're saying, coach, um, is it, it seems more important than ever in a lot of ways, because we are beyond that era of tell a youngster what to do and they'll do it, that they need to know why and they need to have that connection and there needs to be trust. And, let, me, let me hit on that, Peter, because yeah. I'm glad you... you I do high school students, I do elementary school students, junior high school students, I do adults, all types of workshops. And the word you just use is very important because they can, they can spot a fraud, but then sometimes they can't. Because the world we live in with social media is all about deception <laughs> and tricking people. And, and you would think they would be leery of a lot of things, but they're not, however, they do want you to be authentic, authentic. They want you, they want you. So when I do a workshop, they get me. I'm not trying to be anyone else. They get me as far as the rules and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. They get me as far as the reaction that I might have to what they do or what they say. They get me as, as it relates to the honesty of what I say. When they see that, that right there causes this. Because at least they know who you are. The worst thing as a leader is for the people that you're leading not know who you are, what you stand for. And so being authentic is more important now than ever. In the 80s, we knew, we knew people would BS and us. We couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was a different world where, okay, I know Peter's just blowing something up my butt, but you know, I'm stuck. <laughs> now you're not stuck. You're never stuck. Mm -hmm. Even in college, you can go to the portal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can transfer out. NBA, you can, you can request to be traded. Uh, you can change jobs daily now with our, within our society. You're never stuck. And that makes it so important that people really see the real you. I, and I, as we reflect upon each of us, like when we walk into a situation as a head coach or as a, you know, an athletic director or whatever it is, whatever leadership role we're walking in, we're coming in with like all of our gifts and all of our assets and talents into the room. But then on the flip side, um, we're each coming in with limitations and, and, and almost like barriers to connection in some ways. So uh, just thinking of if, if you came into the room and I was a high school player, I, I think there'd be like an intimidation factor because you're the, it's this famous, accomplished, 
um, basketball player, coach, and even even though you would think that would be an asset, it could be it could be a boundary to someone trusting you because they're kind of overwhelmed yeah. by who you are. How how do you? That's just one example. There could be. I mean, there's generational gaps. So again, there's like that's why I think a lot of the these new coaches being hired, these young guys, you know, they they're, they we assume that because someone's 33, they're easier to relate to than someone who's 73. Um, and then there are all kinds of identity variables there. How do you reflect upon your own identity when you walk into a room to lead? I try real hard to be me. I'm not 20. I don't need to act like I'm 20. I do need to have empathy and understand what it's like to be <laughs> That would understand what it might like to be to be 20. I need to understand what it might what, what it might feel like to have people pound you on social media, which we never had that happen to us. That's a totally different level as an athlete that you have to go through. And you're not going through it only during the basketball season like we did. Since you play AAU, you're going through that pounding and people telling you how great or how bad you are the entire time. So I think the empathy is one thing I talk about a lot in my book. Uh, that should have no age limit. Matter of fact, the older you are, the more empathy you should have. And you have to get out of your mind what it used to be like <clears throat> because they ain't like that anymore. And I think a lot of the some older coaches, that's, they're kind of stuck in the past with, uh, with certain things. Uh, and we forget to utilize the wisdom that we accumulated with all the things that we've gone through, we forget to use that because it's nothing more valuable than experience and knowing that you've been through a, a lot more than someone younger has been through. I think a blend is always good to have the young and the old because we have four, four generations of workers. I, I have a workshop tomorrow, but I did a workshop a couple of days ago and we have four to five generations working together for the first time in the history of our world, our country, definitely our country. Can you imagine that? You can go from 75 all the way to 14, 15, 16, and that does set up. So I try to understand. I try to understand. I think I think me coming in, since I have so much experience and everything, failure as much as success, it's just easy to be me. <laughs> I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying to be the best that I can be at whatever profession that I'm in. And in your you've written multiple books, but in our next conversation, I'm really eager to get into some of the constructs that you talk about in, in the, in one of your books. Um, and you really play out things like humility and kindness and um, listening and smiling, like things that might sound inconsequential to leadership, but ultimately they're right at the heart of it in some really great ways. Oh, yeah. Well, just a smiling. That's approachable. That's saying I'm approachable. That's saying you can you can you can approach me and you can feel comfortable talking to me about certain things. And I didn't realize that when I was a young leader because I had this look on my face. It was my personality. It wasn't sometimes we have a personality that does not. I'm not I'm not a smiler. So that's not my personality. I, but when I'm in certain situations, I understand the power of smiling and why it's important and building relationships and being more approachable. And it's when you tell people that coaches and young people and people that I, I uh, do workshops for, when they start understanding and do, being consistent with that, it's, it's very, it's life changing for them and for others more, which is more important. It's life changing for others. <laughs> Coach, my last question for you today um, relates to the idea of growing the good of the world through sport. And in fact, that's one of our initiatives here is called sport and the growing good. Like how do we, through a game, through athletics, create better things in the world around us beyond athletics. And again, I'm coming back to that first quote you had in your book. And you said, my destiny was to bridge the gap between people across different ethnic and socioeconomic lines. Did, did athletics help you to achieve that destiny? Yeah, destiny, purpose, destiny. We talk about having a purpose in life. The reality is most people don't. I didn't. You, you just, you're too busy living your life. And then some people have, they know their purpose and they 
and they taste it and they live it out and it becomes real to them earlier in their life. It didn't really become real to me, but the more I played the game of basketball, the, the more I realized how much diversity is on a basketball team, how much diversity is in the fan base, how much diversity is in the media in some cases. Then it became real to me like, oh, I was born in September 1957. Central High School, Little Rock Central High School integrated where the president sent troops for the Little Rock Nine in September 1957. It was just so, it was just like, wow, I'm born, Central High School crisis is happening. And fast forward 40, 50 years later, the game of basketball has allowed you to bring people together to watch something that they love. That's how powerful sports can be. And I think as a coach, if you have good principles that you incorporate into your, your practice sessions or your general way of dealing with players, then you're setting those players up to be social game changers in our society. It's going to just naturally happen in some cases. And at some point, they're going to say, oh, this is part of my purpose is to bring people together or part of my purpose, acts of kindness or whatever you decide it might be. Coaches set that tone. Coach Johnny Greenwood, Coach Charles Ripley, Coach Eddie Sutton, Coach Dell Harris, and the coaches. You just go on and on with, Don, with the coaches that set me up to help accelerate my purpose, which is amazing. Sometimes you don't know what that is until you're in your 50s or 60s, you know. <laughs> but all along the way, You've been working it and you've been making a difference, but you didn't you didn't comprehend it like you do. It became a lot clearer to me when I was in my 50s. Well, I think what jumps out to me, coach, from this conversation is that, you know, even in an era where you maybe didn't have those heart to heart conversations with your coach every day, you, you observed people of high integrity in action every day and you observed how they treated you, how they managed your team how they led your team and then ultimately you you came to the understanding of what you could do through observe, observing them yeah, that's very accurate and i'm going to put one more caveat on that and i read and studied leaders and you see the and i was a leader i had a dealership for 17 years so i led people for 17 years, sometimes very poorly, <laughs> might I add. But my experiences, we're, we're all shaped by our, our experiences and our knowledge. And that knowledge was, for me, was just, I'm always reading something about building your team, being a good leader, uh, uh, how to build relationships, because I want to know different ways to get that over to other people. And coaches, you gotta you gotta stay on top of your game. Everything you do, stay on top of it. Beyond just basketball, football, I'm talking about the game of the world. Stay on top of that part. 